From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. A deep dive into the resiliency of the sea, and we give time and space to nature. That place that used to be an underwater barren was now a kaleidoscope of life and color. We were surrounded by snappers, more eels, grunts, groupers. Everybody had come back. We saw it come back to pristine in only 10 years. I had never seen such abundance of life. Also, some tips for getting started with a vegetable garden this spring. Um, So you have to put in a little bit of work, but I'll give you one tip. If you're going to travel, make sure the beds are mulched because that will preserve the water. You'll have much less weeding and you'll have a much more even crop. And the best type of mulch I like for vegetable gardens is grass clippings. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Ainsley O'Neill. And I'm Steve Kerwood. When it comes to harnessing the carbon-free energy of the wind, the United States is far behind many other industrialized nations. But if the wind portions of the comprehensive infrastructure plan the Biden administration recently unveiled are implemented, that's all about to change. Here's White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. The president recognizes that a thriving offshore wind industry will drive new jobs and economic opportunity up and down the Atlantic coast, in the Gulf of Mexico, and in Pacific waters. The Department of Interior, Energy, and Commerce announced a shared goal to deploy 30 gigawatts of offshore wind in the United States by 2030, while protecting biodiversity and protecting ocean co-use. Now, a standard coal-fired power plant puts out about a half a gigawatt of electricity, so the Biden plan could provide the equivalent power of 60 polluting coal plants. And instead of spewing CO2, toxic particulates, and mercury, offshore wind will leave the air clean. But building machines to catch the wind won't be free. The Biden plan calls for $12 billion a year over the next eight years for offshore wind power development, creating some 44,000 new jobs. Not all that money will stay at home, though. A modest and once controversial facility off the Massachusetts coast is being developed by a wind power company from Denmark, a nation with decades of wind energy experience. Of course, the Danish company may be asked to buy American-made wind turbines, and the installation jobs won't be exported. The Biden plan also calls for some 9 gigawatts of wind power in the New York-New Jersey Bight, a triangle of relatively shallow water just offshore. Julie Tai is with the League of Conservation Voters. It's really important, and I think why they're focused on the the New York bite um, is not only because we have great wind resources, but also because um, it is an area that has, uh, you know, a difficulty in getting clean energy because there's not a lot of space onshore. So offshore is really a way to get clean energy into the dense urban environment that is the New York metropolitan region. New York City has committed itself to 100% zero-emission energy by the year 2040. And for the past 45 or so years, New York City has partially relied on nuclear energy, which, despite safety and waste concerns, is carbon-free. But the nuclear plant at Indian Point in nearby Westchester County is aging, and its two reactors pose considerable risks in the unlikely event of a major accident. One old reactor has already been shut down, and the other is expected to stop operating later this year. And their departure from the grid will leave New York short of the carbon-free electricity it needs to meet its goals. So the Big Apple needs those Biden wind turbines in a proverbial New York minute. Putting the oceans to work by catching some of the wind offshore is part of the Biden administration's plan to blunt climate disruption and reduce dangerous pollution. And the oceans are also getting a champion in the White House. Jane Lipchenko is the former administrator of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She recently co-chaired a panel of experts advising 14 world leaders on how to transform the ocean from a victim to a solution, with 100% sustainable management by 2025. She is now a senior member of the Climate and Ecology Brain Trust that President Biden has assembled at the White House, serving as deputy director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Before she took her White House job, she spoke with us about the vision and work of the Ocean Panel. Jane, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thanks, Ainsley. It's a delight to be here. Now, when we look at how we currently manage the oceans, why does the world need this total transformation in management? 
The ocean is incredibly important to all of life on Earth. It's important to livelihoods. It's important to help mitigate climate change. And yet the ocean is under serious threat from a wide range of activities, climate change, pollution, overfishing, just to name a few. The current trajectory that we are on is really not good. And the question is, how can we address these underlying challenges? And part of the answer is that we need to do so more holistically than we have done in the past. We've treated a lot of these problems issue by issue. And part of the message that the ocean panel leaders heard is the need for integrated solutions that consider the whole suite of human activities. The other major thing that I think they heard was that a smart future is not just doing more of the same. It's actually doing things differently, being much smarter about how we fish, much smarter about how we produce energy, much smarter about how we transport goods around the world. And so much of what is in their new exciting ocean action agenda is doing things smarter, more effectively, more efficiently, and also doing things more holistically. Now, Jane, what are some of the most important ways that a sustainable ocean economy connects with climate change? That's a great question. In September of 2019, we had a new report that came out from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that was a special report on the ocean and the cryosphere. And it painted in very depressing detail all of the ways that the ocean has been massively affected by climate change and ocean acidification. And it was clear from that report that the ocean is indeed a victim of climate change. It's not just the changes in the weather patterns and the extreme heat and the droughts and the mega storms that we're seeing on land, but the impacts of climate change to the ocean have been very, very significant. But the same week, the Ocean Panel unveiled a report that it commissioned that asked the question, what is the potential for the ocean to provide solutions to help mitigate climate change. Now, before that report, when people thought about climate change in the ocean, they either thought about the impacts that I just referred to, or they thought about the ocean being important for adaptation. But very rarely has the international policy community focused on climate mitigation thought about the ocean. The report that the Ocean Panel commissioned looked at a variety of ocean-based activities and asked simply, what is the potential for mitigating climate change? And they found enough data at the global scale to analyze five categories of activities. And when they added up how much they could get from each of those five, they came to the astounding conclusion that it might be as much as one-fifth of what we need by way of carbon emission reductions to achieve the 1.5 degree centigrade target of the Paris Agreement by 2050. So that's huge. You know, a lot of those activities weren't even on the table, and here we find that they actually could play a very significant role in helping to turn things around in terms of climate change. So, Jane, you mentioned five ocean-based activities to help mitigate climate change. Could you go through those for us, please? So the first one was increasing renewable energy from the ocean, and that's a big one. Most of that is going to likely be wave energy, but it might also be tidal, it might be current, it might be thermal, depending on what part of the world you are in. The second category was making shipping less polluting. So 90% of the goods that are traded globally travel by ocean. And currently, that's pretty polluting. It's dirty fuels. They contribute significantly to greenhouse gases. But it is technologically possible 
to decarbonize shipping. And that could have a huge benefit. Number three is focusing on what we call blue carbon ecosystems. So these are coastal and ocean ecosystems, such as mangroves, salt marshes, or seagrass beds, that are little carbon engines that are just sucking carbon out of the atmosphere like crazy. Those habitats, mangroves, seagrasses, salt marsh beds, can not only remove, but then sequester as much as 10 times as much carbon as an equivalent area of forests, for example. And we've currently lost about half of them globally. So here is an opportunity to actually protect the remaining ones, but also to restore those that have already been degraded. The fourth area for ocean-based activities to mitigate climate change comes from focusing on a little bit greater efficiency with aquaculture, mariculture operations, a little bit greater efficiency with fisheries. But the big one in this category is really shifting diets globally away from animal protein on the land and including animal protein from the sea instead of that animal protein from the land. And then the fifth category was simply sequestering carbon on the seabed. And the panel who looked at these five categories said that the first four, they felt completely comfortable recommending that they be pursued aggressively. Smartly, yes, but aggressively. This fifth one, carbon storage in the seabed, has a lot of questions still about technical and environmental impacts. And so they recommended further study for those. But that's another deep dive, if you will, into the potential of the ocean to not just be thought of as a victim of climate change, but as a solution to climate change by providing as much as one-fifth of the carbon emission reductions that are needed to get us to the 1.5 degree target by 2050. To what extent is it important to frame this vision as an opportunity as opposed to a sacrifice for the countries involved? You've really hit the nail on the head, Ainsley. This is really the secret sauce here. There has been a lot of focus on the ocean as doom and gloom. And there are a lot of problems. There's no sugarcoating that. There are a range of very serious challenges underway to the ocean right now. However, we also see, looking around the world, some amazing solutions that have come to light, that have developed in this community or that country or this industry. And those solutions are bright lights. Collectively, they aren't at the scale that's needed. They aren't at the pace that's needed. But we have the benefit of a huge range of potential solutions that if they were adopted and implemented could actually transform how we think about and how we use and how we benefit from the ocean in ways that are truly opportunities. So this is not really sacrifice. It's being smarter about doing things. I think people are familiar with the concept of greater efficiency when we think about energy. You know, much of the focus for mitigating climate change has been focusing on how do we use energy more efficiently. And there have been tremendous advances in energy efficiency of our appliances, of our automobiles, of our transportation systems. That same concept of being more efficient is what underlies a lot of the transformative actions that are in the Ocean Action Agenda. So yes, this is an incredible opportunity. And it's my belief that these 14 nations that have embarked on this journey of discovery and now journey of action will have such success with what they are proposing that others will say, oh my gosh, I want some of that too. I want to join forces because what they are doing is exactly what the world needs. 
Jane Lubchenco is a co-chair of the Ocean Panel Expert Group. Jane, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. It's been great, Ainsley. Thank you so much. Coming up, the surprising speed at which the oceans can heal themselves. Keep listening to Living on Earth. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. Earlier in the broadcast, we heard about reframing the ocean as a solution instead of a victim. A big part of that means helping the oceans recover from our overfishing, plastic pollution, and climate impacts. And we've got to hurry. Marine vertebrate populations declined by half between 1970 and 2012, according to the World Wildlife Fund. So when it comes to looking at the ocean as a solution, it'll take someone with a bold vision. Someone like Enrique Sala, explorer-in-residence for National Geographic and the co-founder of its Pristine Seas Project. He's always had his eye on that blue horizon. When I was a little kid growing up on the Mediterranean coast, I was very close to the beach, which um, I visited every summer with my parents. Uh, we were watching all Jacques Cousteau's documentaries on TV. Since I can remember, I, I wanted to be a diver, an explorer in Jacques Cousteau's boat. Oh, I love that. My father is a big fan of Jacques Cousteau, so... Well, I was born too late to be a diver in in the Calypso, in Cousteau's boat, but the path that I took was uh, science. I decided to do my PhD studying a little marine reserve, an area where fishing is banned off the coast of, of, the, of the Costa Brava, in the Mediterranean coast of Catalonia. And then I became a professor. But then one day I realized that all I was doing was writing the obituary of the ocean. Mm. I was describing how ocean life was dying because of too much fishing and because of global warming. And that day I decided to quit academia and dedicate my life to bring back the richness and the productivity of the ocean. Enrique wanted to protect and restore places like the Galapagos Islands, which I was lucky enough to visit back in college for a study abroad program. As far away as the islands are now, Enrique took me back there in a heartbeat. Yeah, I love the Galapagos Islands. Actually, the Galapagos Islands, they harbor the largest biomass of sharks ever measured in the ocean. Wow. And you jump in the water, and there is a shallow reef platform at around 30 feet. So you go down and you grab the rock for, <laughs> you know, for your life because the current is very strong. And then you just wait, 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 wait. And then after a while... One shadow came from the deep, and then another one, and then 10, and then 100. And then all of a sudden, you are seeing a wave of 200 hammerhead sharks swimming above you. And then you think, oh my God, I can die now. I've seen <laughs> the most beautiful thing in the world. And then when you think that you have seen it all, then you turn your head to the other side, and there comes a 40, 45 feet long whale shark, the biggest fish in the ocean. So these are the type of things you can see at a wild place like the Galapagos Islands. Without those kinds of wild places, it's impossible to even know what we're missing. As I mentioned earlier, when I was a little kid watching the documentaries of Jacques Cousteau, I was so excited to see all these big fish and the sharks and the dolphins and, and kelps. But then I went swimming in the Mediterranean and there was none of that. The seafloor was a barren ground with sea urchins, no kelps, no big fish, no dolphins, no seals, no sea turtles. And I was confused and I thought that the Mediterranean was a naturally poor sea. But then when I turned 18 and I was uh, allowed to scuba dive, I took a diving course and my first dive 
in the sea was at this Medas Islands Marine Reserve, which had been protected for nine years. And as soon as I got in the water, I realized, wow, this is what Cousteau showed us. This is what the Mediterranean used to be like. This is all that we have lost. Bringing that back is what Enrique now advocates for as an explorer-in-residence with National Geographic. Their pristine seas program, which he founded, uses exploration, research, and media to convince presidents, governors, and local leaders to protect the wildest parts of the oceans with marine protected areas. These are basically nature reserves, or national parks, just for water instead of land. The platonic ideal would be an area free of fishing, mining, and drilling. And Enrique knows firsthand what that can do, even in a place that seems beyond repair. The good news is that if we give the ocean space, marine life can come back spectacularly. And I know because I have seen it. Tell us about one of those success stories where you've seen that in action and seen what can happen. There is a place in Baja California in Mexico called Cabo Pulmo. I was there in 1999, a couple of years after I arrived to my job at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And the place was not very special, except for the corals. There were not many large fish there. The fishermen were so upset with not having enough fish to catch that they did something that nobody expected. Instead of going after the last few fish left, which is what people normally do, they decided to create a no-take area. They asked the Mexican government to create a national park in the sea. When we returned 10 years later, everything had changed. That place that used to be an underwater barren was now a kaleidoscope of life and color. We were surrounded by snappers, morales, grunts, groupers. Everybody had come back. We saw it come back to pristine in only 10 years. I had never seen such abundance of life. We actually measured fish as good scientists and compared the 2009 with the 1999 fish abundance. The tons of fish per hectare increased by 450%. Wow. That was the, the largest absolute recovery of fish abundance we've ever measured in a marine reserve worldwide. And we saw the return of the large predators, like the groupers and the sharks and, and the jacks. It's an extraordinary place. And you know who else is thriving? Those visionary fishermen who now are making far more money from diving tourism inside the reserve mm -hmm. and better fishing around it. Wow. I can only imagine, but I really want to see it myself. <laughs> you should go. It's an extraordinary place. It was some of the best diving in the world. After the break, we'll dive into how Enrique Sala gets people on board with marine protected areas and whether or not the idea really holds water. To get the stories behind the stories on Living on Earth as well as special updates, please sign up for the Living on Earth newsletter. Every week you'll find out about upcoming events and get a look at show highlights and exclusive content. Just navigate to the Living on Earth website, that's loe.org, and click on the newsletter link at the top of the page. That's loe.org. Let's dive back into our story about bringing back abundant life in the oceans with Enrique Sala. He's the founder of the National Geographic Pristine Seas Project, which advocates for creating marine protected areas to preserve the wildest parts of the ocean in their natural state. So Cabo Pulmo is a shining case study of how no-take areas can help everybody, including fishermen. Still, how do you really convince decision makers? You've got to be realistic, Enrique says. When I was in academia, I thought that data was all that was needed. That if decision makers, policy makers had all the information about something, they would make a rational and informed decision. But of course, I was so wrong. I was in the ivory tower and I didn't know how the world worked. And when I left and came to National Geographic to start our pristine seas program, we learned very quickly that first we have to make people fall in love with these places. 
Now, I feel like I've always been in love with the ocean, but if somebody is sort of reluctant, what's the best way to make someone fall in love with the ocean? Every time we have taken somebody to one of these remote, pristine places, they invariably fall in love with the place. It is very difficult for a human with a heart and a soul to see such beautiful nature. It can be a for an old-growth forest. It can be a snow-capped mountains. It can be a pristine coral reef or a kelp forest. It would be very difficult for a human to see these places and not fall in love with them. And I know there are people who are not so friendly to our life support system. And so probably these people lack heart and soul. And for those who lack the heart and soul, as Enrique put it, that's where the facts and data come in. Before the break, Enrique mentioned that the fishermen in Cabo Pumo actually made more money after they designated the reserve thanks to a sizable diving tourism operation. Ecotourism in general is a massive industry. In the average non-pandemic year, it generates something like $265 billion worldwide. Places like Cabo Pulmo, the Galapagos, Rainbow Reef in Fiji, and of course the Great Barrier Reef in Australia are magnetic for divers and snorkelers from all over the world. And if these travelers happen to stop by a gift shop or a restaurant on their way, it's all the more lucrative for the local economy. That's not to mention other ecosystem services that marine protected areas can provide, cleaning up wastewater, absorbing carbon dioxide, and pumping out oxygen for all of us on this planet to breathe. And Enrique says protecting these places demands that kind of scale. The science is telling us that we need half of the planet, land and sea, in natural state. If we are to prevent the extinction of one million species, the collapse of our life support system, and if we are to achieve the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. We need all these intact large ecosystems to continue absorbing much of the carbon pollution that we expel into the atmosphere. And we can start by committing to protect at least 30% of the ocean, fully protected or highly protected, by 2030. That's what the science is telling us is the minimum that we require to make sure that the ocean continues providing for us. 30% by 2030 seems like a tall order, and it is. Right now, only 7% of the ocean is under some form of protection. But it's a start. The United Kingdom has 355 marine protected areas, covering a quarter of their water, while Seychelles and Chile have already protected 30% or more of their own national waters. And the gold medal goes to Palau, having protected 80% of their waters with a marine sanctuary that's larger than the Golden State, California. So some countries are leading the charge in marine protection. And the U.S. is moving in that direction too. President Biden set a goal of setting aside 30% of land and ocean by 2030 with an executive order earlier this year. Still, Enrique isn't letting his guard down. Well, we have two problems here. One is that most of the protected areas are not protected enough. Most of these areas allow fishing within their boundaries. And the second problem is that even if the areas are well regulated, they are not enforced. It is uh, ridiculous that countries propose marine protected areas that allow commercial fishing, including bottom trolling within their boundaries. Now, bottom trolling, which is a medieval practice for obtaining food, where you have these huge nets that scour the bottom of the ocean to catch fish and shrimp. And everything that is caught and destroyed and dead that is not commercial is thrown overboard. And it just takes one pass of the net to kill everything, including thousand-year-old corals. So these areas are not protected. They should not be called protected. This is a joke. So we need to make sure that most of these areas that allow so much commercial fishing are fully protected. Because what the science is telling us is that the higher the level of protection, the greater the benefits for everybody, including fishing. These uh, no-take areas, these fully protected marine areas are savings accounts mm -hmm. with a principle that we set aside that grows like compound interest and produces returns that we all can enjoy, including the fishermen. 
So let's say, miracle of all miracles, tomorrow we have protected 30% of the ocean and it's even being enforced, goodness gracious, how long is it going to take the oceans to recover, even with that? We have been able to detect differences, significant increases in marine life within three to five years. For some species, it's very fast. There was a moratorium of uh, fishing anchovies in northern Spain. It only took two years for the fish to come back. Uh, in Cabo Pulmo, in less than 10 years, we saw it come back to pristine. In other places, like in Kenya or Fiji, a small marine reserves help to increase, in some cases, double the income of the fishermen in only three years. It's very easy to fall into the doom and gloom mm. because there are many problems affecting the ocean. But the good news is that if we give space to the ocean, ocean life comes back spectacularly. I know because I've seen it. We just need to do it again and again and again. That's Enrique Sala, co-founder of Pristine Seas and Explorer-in-Residence at National Geographic. Well, let's take a look beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra. Peter is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. On the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey there, Peter. How you doing and what you got for us today? Well, Steve, I'm doing okay, except uh, like a lot of people, I'm battling the pollen here in the southeast. A friend of mine posted a picture of Lake Lanier, a big lake north of Georgia, and there was what appeared to be from an aircraft almost an iceberg of pollen floating down the lake, but I'm coping with it. The rest of us are coping with it, and that's the one down part to uh, what's going to be a beautiful spring. Well, and you got to admit that the trees and flowers love the pollen. Hey, what do you have for today? Well, remember last month, the frigid temperatures in a lot of places, Texas got hit really hard and unexpectedly. The oil and gas industry got hit extra hard. Machinery, pipelines are frozen. Companies had nowhere to move their natural gas, even if they could, because the electricity they needed to run natural gas facilities and pipelines was nowhere to be found as the Texas grid failed. So the only choice that uh, gas producers had in Texas was to increase their already toxic venting of greenhouse gases, particularly methane, by a factor of five. All wasted, and the only thing it could do is contribute to a warming climate. Instead of warming the people who were freezing in their homes with the power grid out, since they mostly used electricity to stay warm. Hey, what else do you have for us today? Uh, this is from another big state, California, and it's potentially good news. California, of course, has uh, led the nation in being aggressive about sources of air pollution. Their rules on diesel exhaust may have shown a huge health benefit. California's crackdown on diesel fumes from passenger vehicles, planes, locomotives, construction equipment reduced the impact of those diesel fumes by 78% last year compared to 51% for all the states still operating under the more lax federal rules. Wow. So they saved a bunch of lives. And of course, during this pandemic, we know that particulates from fossil fuel, including diesel, make uh, COVID worse, make people uh, more likely to get sick and die. And all of the factors that go into either failure or success in dealing with COVID, this is a unique one, but it's a big education on how conscientious enforcement can save lives and make our air easier to breathe. Just recently, Peter, we saw the studies showing that around the world, some 8 million people every year die from particulates, from burning fossil fuels, and 300,000 a year right here in this country. So now it's time for us to go to history class with Professor Dykstra. And, and what do you have for us today? I've got volcanoes for 400, Steve. Okay. Indonesia's Mount Tambora erupted on April 5th, 1815. It's a 13,000-foot peak that in a flash became a 9,000-foot mountain. The top of that mountain sent dust and smoke and aerosols around the world in what was later called the year without summer. Yeah, that's right. When volcanoes erupt, they 
have these particulates that go in the high atmosphere and can kind of block out sunlight. How much do temperatures decline with this eruption of Tambora? Do you know? It may be around three degrees Fahrenheit, and in some parts of the world, famine and malnutrition and starvation followed. All right. Well, thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth website, loe.org. Coming up, getting back to the garden. That's next on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Our sponsor this week is a new donation website called givingmultiplier.org. Using Giving Multiplier, you can donate to any charity you want and have your donation matched by up to 50%. Giving Multiplier not only adds to your donations, it also helps you find the world's most effective charities, ones that save more lives and do more good with every dollar. Here's how it works. You pick two charities. One of them is from a list of the super effective charities, like the Against Malaria Foundation. Then you decide how to divide your donation between the two. And if you use the invite code EARTH, your donation can be matched by up to 50%. Check it out at givingmultiplier.org. And speaking of philanthropy, we hope that Living on Earth is one of your favorite charities. We couldn't make this show without your support. Donations from people like you help fund our weekly broadcast on climate change, ecology, and public health. Thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Ainsley O'Neill. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Spring is here in the north, and that makes it the perfect time to start a garden. And according to Michael Weishan, there are ways of working smarter, not harder, and still having a bounty of delicious produce. Michael is a landscape designer, a veteran of Living on Earth, and former host of the Victory Garden on PBS. He joins me now to share some tips on how to smooth your way into gardening without breaking your back or the bank. Michael Weishan, welcome back to Living on Earth. I am so happy to be here, Steve. Um, now, I have to confess something, and that is, while I've been very consistent about doing the broadcast over these last 30 years, I've been less consistent about gardening, traveling a lot in the summer, not really able to, to tend to a garden. But this year, because of, of some delightful family uh, changes, there's a, a grandchild uh, in the neighborhood nearby, um, I won't be gone as much during the summer. And I thought, well, maybe I should start growing things to eat again, right? I mean, that's what gardens are for, right? Eating? Well, gardens are about pleasure. I mean, it, that's my version of it. A landscape, a garden should be about giving something back to you. So if your desire is now some fruit and vegetables, that can be managed. Well, I have a wonderful wife, Jennifer, who takes care of the perennials. And so we get that beauty um, that's really nice to have from a garden. But I'm thinking... I'd like to get started again with something, you know, fairly simple, maybe in a raised bed out my kitchen door, which can get plenty of sunlight, depending on where I might put a, a raised bed, and growing something that would be edible and would be tolerant if I do happen to be away for a couple of weeks. Well, the raised bed idea is a really good idea. And as I'm getting older, I appreciate it more and more. It was always a good idea because raised beds drain better. They're very easy to install, too. You can, you know, choose a plot of grass, for instance, and just put the structure, however, is raising it with stone or timber or whatever, and then fill it with soil right over the existing lawn. So you don't have to rototill. It's much easier to construct. It warms up quicker in the spring. And now, as I'm heading for my 60th year, I hate to even say that, it is a lot easier to get down there. I find about 10 inches is the ideal ideal height because that gets you up just enough where it's very easy to, you know, to bend over and do something, but not too high so that if you need to put a wheelbarrow full of soil or you want to put something into it, you can still make that transition without it being, you know, two feet and, you know, very impossible, very hard to do. Okay. I, I have to confess, Michael, I'm not exactly the hardest working gardener. In fact, I'm probably <laughs> downright lazy. 
So for this year to try to get back in the game, what do you recommend for the kinds of vegetables, the edible plants? And all right, you can tell me that maybe I need to have a bit of something that has a, a beautiful blossom on it as well in there. But what are some of the things that I should try to grow in, in this uh, raised bed? Well, you know, here's the question. People always ask me what I should grow. You know, what should I grow? And the answer to that is, what do you like? And then you take a triage of, of that selection about as to what is possible. So first of all, you have a site in full sun, right, Steve? We do. Yeah, I do have one. That's eight hours of sun a day. You know, no cheating. No cheating, yes. All right, so that gives us a huge range of possibilities. So now tell me what you like to have at the table. Well, so I'm going to be nostalgic for a moment. I've had in the past great luck growing basil, for example. And then later in the season when I harvest the basil and I get some pine nuts and a bit of olive oil, I wind up getting pesto, which I get to keep in the freezer all winter long. So that's something that I've really enjoyed. It almost seems that the basil is idiot-proof if I keep it, in, if it's in the sun and gets decent water, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty well. Um, sometimes it's susceptible to various fungal problems. So if it's a very wet summer, sometimes it'll go down. But yeah, most of the herbs, I mean, you can buy little pots of herbs and grow them for the summer. Fresh thyme, for instance, oregano, basil, all that. Parsley, for instance, which I really like. It, it goes so well in so many different kinds of things. Mm. Um, but, you know, so I guess so the question is, so what you would like to grow and also what's cost effective to grow. Okay. A lot of people say to me, okay, well, uh, you know, I like this and I like that. For instance, I love carrots, but I don't grow carrots because carrots are a buck fifty at the market and they're very fussy to grow yourself because they're very fine seeds. You have to weed them constantly. You can't mulch them individually. And if you don't have really deep, perfect soil, they get all crooked. So that would not be my choice. Now, I am a huge fan of both peppers and tomatoes. Ah, uh, tomatoes. Now, so here's the problem I have with tomatoes. That is, at a certain point, the plant looks really ugly. And, you know, as it kind of gets on. So, um, but I do love tomatoes and nothing like a fresh cherry tomato. Sometimes just loaded with sugar and, and, and the large ones too are great fun. So guide me in the area of tomato and how I can keep them looking better. You can't really keep them looking better. And the problem is that a few years ago in New England, this late blight was introduced, which is a very voracious disease that just really consumes the plants, the, the fruit. The whole thing starts to collapse. And once it does, it's over. Um, mm. you, you know, you can try fungicides, but I, I don't because, you know, I don't really want to be eating that stuff. It used to be we would have tomatoes till frost. They didn't look great, but you'd have them right till frost. Now, we're lucky if we get tomatoes through the end of August, uh, early September, which is a month and a half before our frost time here. Interestingly, this year, I have been experimenting with growing, or will be starting because we're about to seed next week, some different varieties that are made to be resistant to this late blight. I don't have any experience with them yet, but if you go through the catalogs, for instance, you can see, you know, late blight resistant, late blight resistant, or we're trialing that for this. So that's one of the tips is to look at the plants and their disease resistance. And so again, you know, the things that you like, so I go to the things I like and things that are expensive. Okay. Before air, we were talking about, you have a little raspberry patch, right? Right. Well, that's something I always tell people to grow because raspberries are unbelievably costly and they're unbelievably easy to grow. If you prune them back at the proper time, they just produce raspberries by the gallon practically. So, you know, that's a, a phenomenal part to have, you know, something to have in your garden. Hey, before we move on from raspberries, how do you get a new set going? Well, you can divide them. You can just dig them up in the spring and pull apart the, the canes and, and plant new ones. Because um, they spread by underground runners, right? So you can just chop them off and, and redistribute them. As long as the plants are healthy, sometimes they go down with various blights and fungal diseases. After a number of years, they start to lose productivity. If that's the case, then just buy some new canes fresh and start a, a new bed. But I've had great luck. I, I think the raspberries I have here, which are a thornless variety called candy, which is very nice for picking so you don't get stabbed, it's a terrific, terrific variety. 
All right, continuing now with the raised bed and some vegetables and the salad greens like romaine or arugula, which some people or some varieties are known as rocket, maybe some some herbs, a cilantro, or I suppose the basil will be fine in there. And then you suggested that peppers can be expensive and really good to grow in a raised bed. What do you have in mind? Well, for the New England area, there's a variety called Ace, which is the only one that I've ever gotten to grow successfully that has more bell peppers than you've ever... I love stuffed bell peppers, so it has more peppers than you could ever use in a season. And the nice thing about this variety is it starts green, so if you like them green, you can have them green. And then it matures through yellow to red, so you can go all the way to whatever color you like, and they each plant produces, I don't know, half a dozen or a dozen bell peppers, Whatever weather, whether it's hot or cool, a fantastic variety. The farther south you get, you have a much larger selection of peppers because they really require heat. But I grow a whole group of them. But again, you know, peppers, some good peppers are really expensive, even in the summer market. So why not grow? It's easy to produce. Yeah, they can get a buck or even two bucks just for a single pepper sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And then when you grow them yourself, I mean, it's a much, much better process. I also like to grow spinach. I know spinach is cheap, but um, it's really fantastic when you have it just fresh because you can keep picking the, the individual leaves. And another real favorite of mine, especially now early in the season, are sweet peas. You can have snow peas. You can have regular uh, fleshy type peas. I mean, the whole process of just picking your own fresh peas and then putting them right into a recipe in, in the early spring is just phenomenal. And, of course, the peas, if I recall, back when I was a little more active in growing things, they'll be gone by the time some of these other things are, are ready for the raised bed. And then you get into the whole thing about sequencing. And so this is the other, other issue. You don't necessarily need a huge space, right? Because you're growing early crops. For instance, you can grow scallions now. You can start putting out, not quite now, but very, very soon, and certainly to the south of us now. And then they're quickly harvested and then replaced by, say, tomatoes or peppers. You can grow peas early on, and then those are replaced by vegetable crops later on. There are also some really small types of uh, diminutive summer squashes. Um, you know, generally the zucchini, the summer squash, they get to be these huge bushes. Mm -hmm. um, but there are various new varieties out that are quite compact. And, you know, if you uh, harvest them, early, not letting them to get into these like baseball size. Uh, <laughs> baseball bat size. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Monstrosities when you can do really nothing with them. I, when they get that size, I just throw them to the chickens because the chickens just eat them. But after that, uh, you know, when they're that size, they just get tough. But if you pick them young and fresh, grilled with a little fresh dill, oh, fantastic. A little olive oil, fresh dill, a little salt, throw them in some aluminum foil, throw them on the grill, cook them till they're tender. Perfect accompaniment to uh, chicken or breast or steak or any type of grilled meat. Fantastic. So I'm going to check in with you after uh, I've tried this for a while, Michael, and, and see how I've, I've been doing. Um, now, remember, you can't be a lazy gardener. <laughs> but, There's no well, such thing as being a lazy gardener. Lazy gardeners go to the supermarket. Um, so you have to put in a little bit of work, but I'll give you one tip. If you're going okay. to travel a little uh, and uh, you know, go about your business during the summer, make sure the beds are mulched because that will preserve the water. You'll have much less weeding and you'll have a much more even crop. And the best type of mulch I like for vegetable gardens is grass clippings. You know, you just uh -huh. bag it from your mower and spread the grass clippings about the vegetable plants. They break down very fast, very nutritious, and they don't linger too long. So when you rotate the crops, you're able then to uh, you know push them aside and get the new plants in without too much trouble, unlike, say, wood chips. Now, one last question about this raised bed area. The dimensions. Yeah, 10 inches off the ground, but how big a raised bed does it make sense to have for the, um, all right, no such thing as a lazy gardener, but for the gardener who has other chores in his or her life to deal with as well? Well, so this is a question I get a lot too, because it's an interesting compromise between productivity and space. So the worst thing you can possibly do is to open a really large space and then not do it well, because then you get discouraged, it gets full of weeds and you stop. 
So better to start small with a 4x4 cube or 5x5 or whatever. Say, wow, that was pretty easy. Love that. Um, and make it 5x10, you know, the next season. What impressed me as a little, little kid was that my grandmother had a kitchen garden. And some of the few things that I do know about gardening, I know from that. And also I was at a camp where we had to garden all the time. And now there's a, there's a grandchild in my, in my orbit. And so I'd like to have her see that, in fact, food does come from what we do with the sun and the earth and the water and not just out of the grocery store or cellophane package. So that is such an important lesson, Steve. And, you know, I, during my victory garden days, um, I often lectured at schools about just about that very issue about, you know, because a lot of times kids have no association with the fact that the earth produces the product, you know, bananas and grapes and vegetables and carrots and all these things just don't appear in the store. They actually appear from human effort in the soil. And I really think that that's the beginning about teaching kids about the value of nature is showing them firsthand how marvelous and miraculous something as simple as a seed germinating can really be. And once they start on that path, then they understand almost intuitively that the world is a growing thing, has a, the climate is a real issue, and they start to be really caring and concerning about the world around them. Michael Weisson is a master gardener. He's been the host of PBS's Victory Garden, and he's helped us garden here on Living on Earth. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. Steve, it's always my pleasure. Anytime you want to talk about gardening, I'm right here. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Grace Callahan, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Paige Greenfield, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Jake Rigo, Natalie So, and Yolanda Omari. Special thanks this week to the New England Aquarium. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Ainsley O'Neill. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.